back on. Okay, there we go. Cool. Uh, we just had a momentary lapse. Um, we've been broaching a difficult subject with this series on lament. And so to make it a little bit more palatable, we decided last week to introduce a game show segment to our weekend worship experience. And that is, ready for it, Taylor Swift, Lyric or Lamentations. There it is. Yes, Lamentations or Taylor Swift lyrics. Everybody give it up for the game show. And um, I brought up here Allison this week who is competing. If she gets both questions right, you will get a kind bar because it is the uh, healthier snack of choice by so many. And it's all I had to grab on the way out of the house. So with that in mind, um, you said you are an expert on all things tea swizzle. His name's Drew. Okay. And uh, so if there is someone who is a Taylor Swift expert, you would be it. And, um, and so, well, you know, I, listen, you're here, so you take the spotlight. And uh, I want everybody else to commit into this as well. We're going to vote. You're going to give me a final answer, and then we're going to do Does that sound good? All right, so put the first question up there. Here we go. My eyes are blind with tears. My stomach is in a knot. Is this a Taylor Swift lyric or a lamentation? Everybody, if you think this is a Taylor Swift lyric, hands up. Well, we got one. We got one. If you think this is a lamentation, that's most of the crowd. Our final answer. I'm going to have to go with lamentation. And it is Lamentations 2.11. It was actually read earlier today uh, by Ravens, who so poetically uh, read Chapter 2 of Lamentations. All right, next one. You're one for one. One question away from the kind bar. Hit the next one. You're like a lion ready to pounce. Ooh. Who says this is a Taylor Swift lyric? Okay, all right, all right. Who says this is a Lamentation? Ooh, it's split down the middle. It's a split. What is your final answer? Okay, my final answer, because Raven went with it, I'm going to go with... Um, lamentation. And the answer is, of course, Lamentation 3. Way to win a kind bar. Everybody give it up for Allison. I don't, I don't have it with me. It's in my backpack. So we'll get it after the service. Um, I want to recap with you guys. We started a series called Collapse last week, and it's dealing and broaching a difficult, difficult subject. How do we deal with loss? Where do we put our pain and despair and sadness and brokenness? And we have to, as a church and as a culture, create space for it because left unchecked, it will ruin us. We talked about how lamentations comes from the first word of the chapter, which means how. It's like saying, how could this be? How could this have happened? What is going on? So we beg the question, how can being sad help us? And perhaps the sadness of lamentations is precisely that God is kind of doing away with our certainty and our privilege, and in the instability, 
we are invited to become brutally honest. Because when we're honest, we recognize just how overwhelming the loss is, just how great the anxiety is, just how deep the fear is. When we actually get honest, we, we tell God the truth about how we're feeling. And it's there that we find that even in our darkest moments, that our, our honest laments become places of worship. And he's big enough to handle that. But what it does for us is it puts us into a place where we acknowledge our own need of God's sustaining presence. And we get to finally collapse all together on Christ. And so we practice giving space for lament around the idea of, God, do you see my plight? Do you see what is going on here? And that's where we started. So today, I just want to jump in. We've already read Lamentations 2, and if you recall, they're written as these worship poems, like a reader's theater. There's two voices, the narrator and the person of Jerusalem, and they're, they're meant to be public confessions that will lead us past the questions into a place of joy. But I want to start this morning with where does lamenting come from? There's really four answers. It comes from our own actions, right? We're all aware of this. I made a decision. That decision led to guilt, led to brokenness, led to sadness. Um, and by the way, sometimes when we make a decision, even when we achieve whatever we set out to achieve, that can lead to its own sense of sadness and loss, isn't it? So sometimes it's because we didn't achieve, and sometimes it's because we did. And so our own actions, whether it's something we said or something we did or didn't do, it was us, and it comes from our own actions, and it stings really badly when things fall apart, when we're exposed that we're not enough, that we made the wrong choice. It exposes our own brokenness and selfishness and all of those things, and it stings because we chose it. We caused it. And the consequences of our own sin can be debilitating and leave us haunted, right, in that place of guilt. Sometimes it's not our actions. It's the actions of someone else, others. They did it. They made that choice. They were selfish. They did or didn't do whatever it is that happened. And the ripple effects and waves have repercussions in the world and in people's lives. You can see it from a small relationship all the way up to leaders of countries and businesses. And this is true. They make a decision. It has waves, right? And those waves, sometimes they affect us, and we can be sad 
and in despair because someone started that rumor, took that thing, chose to do that. And it stings all the more because we can't do anything about it. It's something they did. And it's easy to get caught up in that one, isn't it? Sometimes no one did it. Right? It's just part of life. Maybe it's we're leaving one stage of life to the next, and, and so there's a sense of loss to our old self. Maybe uh, there's a sense when, when you leave childhood and you become an adult, like you're faced with reality and your innocence is gone, and, and there's no little kids anymore. And Santa's not, you know, Santa the way we thought Santa was. And, and, and so I, I don't know what it is, but sometimes no one is to blame a natural disaster occurrence. That storm, that flood, that fire. Tragedy strikes because tragedy happens and it stings no matter how we mourn because there's no place to direct our energy, is there? There's no one we can get back at. There's nothing we can fix. All we can do is try to clean up and move on. There's a serious loss to that. So sometimes it's us, sometimes it's others, sometimes it's no one, sometimes it's God. Because there's this other sound coming from Lamentations chapter 2. It comes out with brokenness and it says that God is the one behind it. Now, I can't confirm or deny God's actions in the world, even as a pastor. There's a mystery to that, right? But the writers of Lamentations see God as the mover behind everything, and they're asking questions as if they are in a direct relationship. What's your involvement in all of this? We do the same thing. We just somehow feel ashamed for doing it publicly. Like it's taboo to say, God, why did you do this? Now, in our honest prayers, when we're trying to go to sleep at night and tears are rolling up and we're frustrated, it's very real. God did this to me and he allowed this. And the writer's lamentations are picking up on that. You picking up what I'm putting down? See, laments, they have to come out because they come from deep places in our souls that recognize our own fragility. We don't like to come face to face with that, do we? Our inability to actually deal with situations, our need for others, and our need for God. Laments create a space for us to spit up all of the emotions tied with this and get the questions out. And by the way, all of it is necessary. I would say that there are times that we need to simply hear how absurd pain really is. Um, 
have a story, and if we have time, I'm going to come back to it. Sometimes, sometimes we try to hold it all in because of what other people are going to think about us, right? So I don't let myself lament because if I come out with the truth about how I'm feeling, if I come out with the truth that I might not be enough and that I'm frustrated with this and I'm really sad about that and this thing that happened to me should have never happened and that thing that happened in the world is not supposed to be that way, it makes us seem weak. And we don't want to be seen as weak because our culture doesn't value that. You see, we have this this comparison issue where I think it forces us to keep stuff in rather than actually dealing with it. But what if, what if we actually need sadness to move forward? I know that sounds funny, but what if we do? We actually need sadness to lead us forward. What if we need to express these laments or we would be trapped? Actually, I think Hollywood has tapped into this perfectly. And if you haven't seen the movie Inside Out by the master storytellers from Pixar, here's a clip from the movie Inside Out. And to preface it, the movie is about a little girl named Riley who has moved from Minnesota to San Francisco because of her parents' job. And the movie, by and large, takes place with these characters who are the different emotional states inside her own brain. There's joy, anger, disgust, fear, and sadness. And so these characters are taking different roles and controls, and Riley has been dominated. Everybody has a dominant disposition. Riley has been dominated by joy. And all of a sudden, her world is crumbling because of this move. And the characters are fighting for how to solve the problem. Roll the clip. Great try. You could get lost in there. Think positive. Okay. I'm positive you will get lost in there. That's long-term memory. This endless warrant of corridors and cells. I read about it in the manuals. The manuals? The manuals! You read the manuals! Yeah. So you know the way back to headquarters! Uh, I guess. <laughs> you are my map. Let's go! Lead on, mind map! Show me where we're going! Okay, only... Uh, I'm too sad to walk. Just give me a few... hours. Oh! Which way? Left? Right. No, I mean, go left. I said left was right way, correct. This actually feels kind of nice. Okay, here we go. We'll be back to headquarters before morning. We can do it. This will be easy. This is working. So as the clip continues, sadness starts touching all the little orbs represent memories. And she starts touching. And so the whole bottom row of long-term memories is now just blue with sadness. And um, there's this fight about these core memories that create identity pillars. And they're all joyful memories. But when sadness starts touching them, they turn blue and they become sad memories. And the islands that make up those parts of the brain begin crumbling and collapsing. 
characters inside Riley's head are asking the question we all do. Why is this happening to me? Now, scientifically, we all do this. We all ask why, even though it's a terrible, terrible question because it always leaves us wanting, right? Um, because we're wired a certain way, when things are unstable, we often get into fight or flight mode. You've been there before. This is going south. I either need to fight for it or run away. And ultimately, Riley chooses to run away from home because there wasn't created space for her to bring to the surface what she was dealing with, with her loss. And so we have these default modes of dealing with brokenness. We run away from issues or we get angry at issues. And if last week we started the stages of grief with denial, anybody know the second stage? It's anger. Why is this happening? We're expressing something that shouldn't be. So we run away from issues. We get angry at issues. We withdraw or we get psyched. Some people put their heads in the sand and don't want to see what's going on in the world because it's not within their world. But at some point, all of us will come face to face with brokenness. And I want to reassure you, if you're sitting here today or watching online, it is okay to be angry. It's okay. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to have the feelings that you do over relationship loss, over that issue that haunts you, over that tragedy that happened. But our efforts in trying to figure out and answer the question of why did it happen, they don't ever satisfied because even if you can say they did this and you can put a face to it, you can't answer why they did this. What made them do that thing? It, it, it always leads you wanting. Maybe even if we did it, we know why we did it, but it can't help us make different outcomes. I know why I did that. I wish I didn't do it. Anybody been there? <laughs> if no one did it, right, and we have no place to direct that energy other than try to clean up and rebuild, it still doesn't answer the question of why did this happen. Now, reflection on it, sometimes we can learn from those places. Sometimes we can expose where we had a problem and we can rebuild and we can fix and we can overcome. But the argument that Lamentations is going to teach us is that doesn't come without the spirit and presence of God bringing that into our lives. Um, the question of why always leaves us let down. And, and the reason is there's a promise and then a letdown, right? That's a whole other series that we're planning into next year about dealing with disappointment and letdown, okay? Whole other series. But think about it. We have this idea, this person makes this promise to us and they fail to deliver. This person said this and they didn't follow the protocol. And we were the expense of that decision. 
There's a promise and a letdown. And what happens when you feel like that promise is God? God's always good, but he caused all of this and allowed all of this to happen. We have to express disappointment, frustration, brokenness, or it will define and unravel us. But when we celebrate, this is the kicker, when we celebrate and embrace that we don't have the answers, we actually, well, we actually will be freed from it and start to rob it of its sting. Imagine this. Imagine someone has just died, okay? And we're all sitting around at the house at a meal, and no one is talking about it. No one's talking about the hurt and the loss. In that scenario, no one is freed from suffering. They're oppressed by it. But if all of the sudden someone starts up talking about how they miss Johnny and someone else breaks in with funny stories of things they did together and someone else starts crying and someone else starts laughing, then talking about their brokenness in the moment doesn't destroy them, it frees them. And so we may not have answers, but we do need to talk about it. We do need to express it. And that's the point in today's lament. For God to hear us. I want to point out a couple of scriptures to you. The first one is is this. In verse 4, there's this picture of God's bow being bent on destruction. He says he bends his bow against his people as though they were his enemy. His strength is used against him to kill the finest youth. His fury is poured out like fire on beautiful Jerusalem. Yes, the Lord has vanquished Israel like an enemy. He has destroyed her palaces and demolished her fortresses. He has brought unending sorrows and tears upon beautiful Jerusalem. See, for the Israelites, the people that are writing this, seeing that God is behind their loss, it's this giant reversal. God's got the bow bent on their destruction, and it's a reversal of the unbent bow all the way back in Genesis 9 when God put a rainbow in the sky and he made a covenant promise with Noah to say that he would never again destroy his people. Sometimes when we are going through something, it can feel as if God is completely against us. Doesn't make it true. But it can definitely feel that way. And if you have felt like God somehow took that rainbow and turned it upside down and he's against it, let me just say that is an exposure of sin and brokenness in our world. And it is okay that you feel that way because what it is is eliciting the truth that there is sin and brokenness in our world. And this lament is a long recital of God's actions 
against a city, which make it very clear for these writers that Jerusalem's most dreaded enemy was the Lord. That covenant that was made with Noah, now God's at work causing their destruction. One line later in, in the poem of Lamentations 2, I'm not going to read it, but one line even says, mothers are eating their young just to stay alive. That's how bad it is, and the God is behind it. The imagery is extreme, and they're blaming God. And at the end of Lamentations 2, there's nothing that takes away the pain. There's nothing that takes away the suffering. There's nothing that takes away the brokenness. When we are going through pain and suffering and brokenness, and we want God to heal us and change us, by the way, that's not a bad thing, but what can often happen is we can reduce God down to an idol and a product. Anybody made plea bargains with God before? God, if you just, I will. If you just do this thing, I will make this promise. What happens is that makes the Almighty into a commodity. He's like a, a vending machine dispenser. God, you just give me this thing and I'll just put my money in and we'll have a transaction. But a relationship doesn't work based on transactions like that. It works through transformation. And so maybe the point that the writers of Lamentations are making is that you and I get to express all of the frustration that we have and that God is big enough to hear it. Maybe the point is, as we express it, we create space for God to begin the healing. Because God is not found in the running away from brokenness. God is found in the midst of brokenness. God is found in the embrace of the world. And the beauty of Christianity is that we actually get to embrace the mystery of God's presence. And it is mysterious and wonderful and beautiful. The poetry in this passage goes even deeper. Um, let's look, just, just look at this. Um, verse 1, how the Lord in his anger has humiliated the daughter Zion. He's thrown down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool on the day of anger. So the idea of splendor and footstool, these are ideas of God's promises to be present and to make his people a blessing for everyone else, to lift them up. In fact, one uh, verse 3, it says, All strength of Israel vanishes beneath his fierce anger. The Lord has withdrawn his protection as the enemy attacks. He consumes the whole land of Israel like a raging fire. Verse 6 says, he has broken down his temple as though it were a mere garden shelter. The temple represented God's manifest presence in the world. And the writers are expressing this idea that when we're going through something that is really sad and full of despair and brokenness, doesn't it sometimes feel as though God has forgotten about us? Maybe the point 
is that, like Mick Jagger, I can't get no satisfaction. Maybe the point is that no matter who is behind the brokenness, it hurts. It hurts. And sometimes it hurts to the point where there are no words left. Look at verse 10. It says, the leaders of beautiful Jerusalem sit on the ground in silence. There's a song called Car Radio by the band 21 Pilots. And it's a song about how someone stole his car radio. And now he just sits in silence. But he can't handle the silence because it's making him actually have to think and face all of the brokenness and all of the frustration in his life. And it's louder than any song has ever been. We can't run from it. We can't drown the sorrows enough. We have to turn and face them. And so the writers of this lament are saying as real and raw as all of the emotions and sadness and brokenness and things that we face, here's what we get to do. We get to cry out. Look at verse 11. I have cried until the tears no longer come. My heart is broken. My spirit is poured out in agony as I see the desperate plight of my people. Verse 18. Cry aloud. In Hebrew, it gets translated, their heart cried. It's not just they voiced it. it th everything was weeping from within. Have you been to that point where you've cried so much there are no more tears? It's like tear dry heaves. There's nothing left. And so your heart, that's, that's the way it is saying, cry aloud before the Lord. Let your tears flow like a river day and night. Give yourself no rest. Give your eyes no relief. Verse 19. Rise during the night and cry out. Pour out your hearts like water to the Lord. Lift your hands to him in prayer. We are supposed to cry out. We're supposed to create space. Jesus tells this story. It's a parable in Luke 18 about this widow who goes to this unjust judge. And she knocks on his door day and night because she wants justice. And this judge doesn't care about people or God. That's what the parable says. And she keeps knocking on the door. And she wants justice and he doesn't care. And he doesn't give in to anyone. He doesn't fear God. He doesn't fear people. But this little old lady keeps knocking on his door. And finally he says, well, she's not going to stop. So I'm going to give her what she wants. And he renders a verdict in her favor. Because of her persistency knocking on the door. And Jesus says, learn a lesson from the unjust judge. Even he rendered a just decision in the end. So don't you think God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? So what are you and I crying out for? What are we crying out for? The, the poet in Lamentations regards Jerusalem having the temple there. He regards that being the very center of the universe. 
And so when the city fell, when, when the city collapsed, when the people got taken into exile, when they were run over by another country, it signaled an unprecedented collapse of order. And the poet compares the loss of Jerusalem, it was so deep, to the depths of the sea, the vastness of the ocean. And in the ancient world, the ocean also represented pure chaos, which is why you always see sea monsters in the pictures of the ocean. That's where creatures of the unknown are. That's the abyss. That's, that's chaos. So there's this final question, and we're going to pull it from verse 13. It's the question, who can heal you? Who can heal you? And it's a rhetorical question because the idea is that there's only one who can heal our chaos. There's only one who can restore our brokenness. It's the Lord. Verse 13 says, what can I say about you? Who has ever seen such sorrow? How can I comfort you? To what can I compare your anguish? And then, your wounds are as deep as the sea. Who can heal you? You and I, with no rest, without ceasing, are going to make personal our pain, our sadness, God can handle the plight, the tragedy, and the brokenness, and all of our colorful language about it. And when we make it personal and we express it, it it's as if God says this, because he said it in Isaiah chapter 40. He said, um, why, why do you guys say that your ways are hidden from me? Why would you say that? I see it all. From Isaiah 40, by the way, verse 27. So you and I are going to let it all hang out. We're going to let it all hang out. We're going to put it all on the line because even God should be moved. That's the rhetorical question. Are you not moved? If the writers of Lamentations see God as behind it. They also see God as the only hope they have for healing. And too often, our way of handling difficult circumstances in the church and society is to sugarcoat the realities, to gloss over the awful events with polite language and euphemisms, and to refuse to say directly what has happened. The tendency to be less than forthright in dealing with terrible events, honesty with ourselves and the world, right? It carries over into our prayer life, which is why when most of us pray, we come with, oh, dear Lord, how good things are. We love you. And we have this cursory prayer. It's why when people ask you, how you doing? I'm fine. I'm good. This carries over, and so what you and I are going to do 
We're not going to address God politely with the proper decorum. We're going to let it all hang out because Lamentations teaches us to put it all on the line, to be fully honest with ourselves and with each other and with God. We're going to claim that our pain is useless and it's absurd and it doesn't make sense. And we're not going to stop short. We're going to put it all on the line. We're going to identify what's wrong. And then the fact that it's beyond our capacity to heal it and make it right. And it's in that moment where the God of the universe is going to hear every cry we put out there. I want to invite the band to come and play for moment, and um, you may have realized that you guys have pieces of paper. And the pieces of paper we started last week, and we wrote down some laments, and we brought it to this gangly, messed up, hodgepodge of a wailing wall. And when I say we're going to create space to name our brokenness and put it all on the line, sometimes we need to start being real with our pain, with our sadness, with our brokenness. I'm not guaranteeing that by naming it, everything in your life is going to be made right. But I want you to hear the words of Jesus the Christ. If the unjust judge would give a just verdict to a persistent widow, how much more, how much more would the God of the universe who hears your cry come to you? so I want you to write down your prayer. I want you to lay it all out on the line. I want you to identify what's wrong. Don't stop short. Identify what's wrong in your own life. Identify what sins are ailing you, what is keeping you back. Identify what's wrong out there and begin to cry out about it. And put it at the feet or the door or with the person who is going to hear your cry. So as the band sings, would you take a moment to write something down? Claim it. Put it on the wall. Standing here in your presence In your grace so relentless I am one by perfect love Wrapped within the arms of heaven In a peace that lasts forever Sinking deep in mercy See, I'm wide awake Drawing close 